God is good all the time. Hey, welcome everybody and welcome to those of you that are joining us online and those at our CM and our Millstadt campus. It really is good to see everybody. The big idea tonight is think opportunity, not obstacle. Think opportunity, not obstacle. The gospel is good news because it calls us from our worst lives to our best lives, from our worst eternal destiny to our best eternal destiny, from the bright light of Christ as revealed through biblical teaching. We can examine the whole of life and we can examine our lives as well. Paul wrote to encourage a discouraged church. Why were they so discouraged? Because Paul was in prison awaiting capital trial. And he argues that it's precisely because of his dire circumstances that he has learned to experience God's joy in all situations. How's this possible? Because he has not only experienced God's saving love, but God has forged in him the character of Christ. How Paul sees the world and his world view comes through the lens of all that God has done for him, all that Christ has done in him, and all the Holy Spirit is doing through him. Paul, in the midst of a really horrible situation, has perfect peace. He doesn't know how bad his situation is. He will never be a free man again. He will die a martyr. His days on earth are numbered at best. His situation from an earthly standpoint is terminal. If we view our lives only in time and space, such times are indications that the movie's almost over. The credits are about to roll. There's a tendency to collapse beneath the existential weight of such circumstances. There's a tendency to just shut down when life gets overwhelming, but that doesn't have to be our reality. You see, Christians handle this differently than those who do not know Christ. Death is not our end. Death is our beginning. Have you ever been immersed in a major pity party? sent out invitations and wondered why nobody wanted to come. <laughs> and then you see somebody that's in a far worse or more difficult situation than you. And you see them choosing to look at the ray of sunshine instead of the threatening skies. Now, I must confess that since Melissa has been diagnosed with cancer at the end of last summer and since she's begun her journey through chemo and surgery and radiation, I really haven't complained much. I just haven't complained much. You know, watching her battle a horrible illness with faith and strength and courage has certainly kept most of my weak sauce in the bottle. Her experience has been contextualizing, humbling, and inspiring for me. Believers who have learned to rejoice in the worst of circumstances have much to teach the rest of us, for the fruits of their salvation are being clearly displayed. 
People who stand tall in hardship rightfully become our role models, our teachers, those who inspire us, our heroes in faith. We need these people, but we also need to be these people. I have known some of you for parts of four decades. How's that? Got here in the late 90s. We're in the early 2020s. I've known some of you for parts of four decades. And you know what? We've all been through some things. Can I just hear an amen from somebody? We've all been through some things. And yet here we are. Here we are. Worshiping. Praying, believing, giving, growing, going deeper. I'm grateful for what so many of you have taught me through the example of your unwavering faith in difficult circumstances. I, I'm grateful to you. You see, that's how the church works. We are a community. I've said before, I like the word community better than congregation because I want to do a whole lot more than just congregate. I want to be in community where we learn from one another, where we do life with one another. So let's get our scripture. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me has helped me spread the good news. Paul's imprisonment at the end of his life, has greatly impacted Christianity as a whole. Not for the short game, but for the long game. Were Paul not imprisoned in Rome, he would possibly not have written the prison epistles. So we would not have the New Testament books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul may very well have just been too busy Being a preacher, teacher, evangelist, mentor, and an apostle to even have time to write. Sometimes it's the difficult stretches in life's trail that offer us a unique opportunity, and may I say even platform, to share the good news. Verse 13, for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. Paul is not in prison because he can't behave himself. That would have produced a a different dynamic entirely. He's incarcerated because of his relentless witness to Jesus Christ. So, So you may ask, why does sharing the gospel get him arrested? It's actually a pretty good question. And you got to know a little bit of history to answer it. Jews throughout the Roman Empire had always represented some challenges from the Roman perspective. In fact, there were laws that were enacted to give legal protections to Jews concerning their religious practices on one hand, and then the laws that were given to help protect Jews sort of created resentment against them on the other hand. The first Christians were almost all Jewish. I mean, almost all of them were Jewish. And never forget, Jesus lived and died a Jew. So what is the dynamic here? What's really going on here? At first, Christians were seen as a sect, S-E-C-T, of Judaism. But by now, there was beginning to be a clear separation. Christianity is finding its own identity. And not only that, but the Jews didn't want to be associated 
with the increasingly unpopular Christians, especially since Christianity was becoming more Gentile all the time and more persecuted by the dead. The Jew, Jewish faith wanted some distance from the Christians. They didn't want to be associated with them. And so in time, the Romans began to see Christians and Jews as separate. But up to that time, many of them saw them as one and the same. As a Jewish Christian, Paul kind of had the worst of both worlds. As a Roman citizen, his case is really unique because they can't just kill him without due process. And that's why Paul finds himself in prison, because they can't just kill a Roman citizen without due process. So one of the things that I think is very important here is why is Paul in prison? Why is Paul in prison? Number one, the Jewish challenge. Israel is at the far eastern reaches of the Roman Empire, and the Jews did not respond well to forced occupation. Freedom is hardwired into their faith. And the fact that Israel was not a free nation was both a geopolitical and, and a theological disaster. The land God promised to Abraham was at stake. And that meant the very identity of the people was at stake. They tended to keep to themselves in closed communities with foreign customs, and that was problematic in itself. But despite all this, most Romans at the time still considered the Christians to be part of a Jewish movement. There is some separation, but not entirely. So they, Paul suffers from what I'm going to call the Jewish challenge in the Roman Empire. Number two, there's just a failure to assimilate. Equally challenging was the fact that Jews did not assimilate into Greco-Roman culture. They didn't want to be Romans. And the Romans could never understand why anybody would not want to be them. Jews and Christians were monotheistic. They believed in only one God. And they were uncompromising toward their traditional customs and traditions and culture. The Jews believed they were God's chosen people. They were boldly and wholly set apart for a special purpose. The purity of the faith and guarding religious practice was priority one. Jews were not held together by place. There was Jewish presence all over the Roman Empire, all around the Mediterranean. They were spread out. We, we find archaeological findings of more synagogues all of the time from the mid-first century and late-first century all over the Roman Empire. They're not held together by central worship because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Jews are held together by their sense of community, not place, not location of the temple. It's a sense of community. In synagogues and in homes, the faith is kept alive, one family, one clan, one tribe at a time. The Romans never got the Jews, nor did they ever take the time to do so. When some Jews began to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, it really changed nothing from a Roman perspective. So this is all a little complicated. Number three, 
There were charges of Christians being un-Roman. The dissemination of religions and philosophies deemed un-Roman was actually a chargeable offense in the empire. Since much of the economy was based on religious associations, polytheism, belief in many gods, was by far the preferred religion. Labor guilt often formed around one particular god or goddess. Once emperors began to demand to be worshipped, religion and politics all of the sudden became further entwined. Taking a pinch of incense, tossing it into a flame before a magistrate every year and declaring Caesar is Lord was seen as an act of civic loyalty by the Romans. The Christians and the Jews would have no part of it, but the Christians were even bolder. You see, what the Christians would do is they would stand before the magistrate, take the pinch of incense, and boldly and defiantly proclaim, Jesus is Lord. That's where we get the saying, Jesus is Lord. It was an act of protest. Polytheism kept folks flexible. And flexible people are pragmatic. And that was all the Romans wanted everybody to be. The belief in many gods also kept people like priests and priestesses, artisans and artists working. You see, pagan temples were an industry. And the more impressive ones drew tons of tourists. And tourists bring in money. They fueled every level of the economy. Much of what we would consider to be first century art were representations of pagan gods, and they were deemed idolatrous by the Jews and by the Christians. Prohibiting the making of graven images was one of the Ten Commandments. It was a cornerstone of Jewish and then a cornerstone of Christian thought. Monotheists were actually called atheists, atheists because they denied the existence of the gods, plural. Judaism and Christianity that grew from it were frankly as un-Roman as you could get. Just as un-Roman as you could get. Number four, evangelism. Evangelism. Unlike the Jews, Christians didn't keep their beliefs to themselves. They shared their faith everywhere. Kind of what we're doing right now, right? With, with 500, we're just sharing our faith everywhere. Jews were never very evangelistic. They were standoffish, somewhat cloistered, but not evangelistic. Christians were trying to convert everyone they saw, and they were having significant success. When enough people converted to Christianity in a community or a region, they put folks supported by pagan temples out of work. Evangelism was more of an economic threat than a religious threat to the Romans. The Romans really didn't care what you worshipped or who you worshipped. They really didn't care. Uh, but they needed you to be pretty flexible about things. And they didn't want you to be overly evangelistic about things. And they certainly didn't want you to claim that your God was the only God. And that's exactly what the Christians were doing. Number five, Paul is a repeat offender. I mean, he causes trouble everywhere he goes. 
and the case against them is growing vast. Now, back in those days, you couldn't just get online and see where Paul was wanted. But as Paul goes on and on and on, there becomes a group of people who seem to think their mission in life is to make sure that everybody knows what a troublemaker Paul is. These people are probably his thorn in the flesh. They're probably his thorn in the flesh, or as we might say in our day, his pain in the butt. That's kind of what these people were to Paul. And so Paul, everywhere he goes, this sort of reputation gets around and it follows you. It was sort of like anytime Paul showed up in a community, it was kind of like, here comes trouble. And it did. It did. Number six and finally, Paul, Paul disturbed the peace. You need to understand the number one internal threat to an occupying empire is insurrection. For this reason, disturbing the peace is normally a capital offense. It's why in totalitarian governments, protesters are treated like horrific criminals. It is an internal threat. In a very real sense, the charge that condemned Jesus was disturbing the peace. I mean, in a very, very real sense, he was condemned for disturbing the peace. Paul disturbed the peace everywhere he went. He is disruptive by nature. So the big idea that I want you to understand is a lot of times we look at Jesus' crucifixion and we feel that he was unjustly convicted, right? And I think there's every reason to believe that in Jesus' case. Don't think for a minute Paul was unjustly convicted. The case against him was strong from the Roman perspective. Paul didn't claim to be the son of God, but Paul caused many riots in every village and town he entered. So Paul is a threat. He broke both the letter and the spirit of Roman law. So if you want to know why Paul's in jail, that's why Paul's in jail. You want to know why they're going to kill Paul? That's why they're going to kill Paul. Verse 14, and because of my imprisonments, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. I want to be very clear about something. God does not cause bad things to happen. But good can come from bad things and God can work bad things. So I just want to, I need to, to think about that a minute. God does not cause bad things to happen. God is good. What causes bad things to happen? Satan causes bad things to happen. Evil causes bad things to happen. A fallen humanity causes bad things to happen. God's goodness, though, can even permeate those difficult situations. That's why we sometimes see good come from bad. Paul's endless and escalating persecutions kind of helped rocket fuel the Christian movement. Why? Because not even the power of Rome could stop Paul. The dude can't be stopped. You see, fear begets fear, but courage begets courage. And defiance begets defiance. Paul was warned and cited, publicly 
humiliated, stalked, beaten, and jailed. This kind of conviction came at great personal price, but it also inspires people. It really, really inspires people. Others followed Paul's example, and they fearlessly proclaimed the gospel. Come what may. Come what may. It's hard to shut down something when its proponents are fearless. Persecution does not stop the witness of somebody who's prepared to die. In fact, nothing can. So what really happens with early evangelism is you have fearless evangelists and you have the power of the Holy Spirit. And when those two things collide and you're sharing good news of Jesus Christ, there's going to be a substantial market for that. And that's what happened. But you need to understand, everything about this is jagged. It's jagged. Verse 13, it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. Now, I really want you to to focus in on this. Because if we're just reading this, it's the kind of passage we may just skip over. We may just mentally gloss over this. But I, I really want you to lean in here because God is about to teach us something incredible through this. We know that there were factions in the early church. We know they formed around charismatic leaders. I would say the big four, the Mount Rushmore of the early church, were Peter, John, James, and Paul. The first two were inner circle disciples, and nobody could take that from them. The third was Jesus' brother. Nobody could take that from him. And Paul was Paul. Though Paul was the most enfranchised, the best educated, probably the most effective of the group, he's also by far the most controversial. He does not carry original discipleship status. He's not a charter member. And he had been a persecutor of the early church before his conversion. And Paul was just straight up chippy at times. I mean, if I had to You know, if there was a survey, who in the Bible would you not want to have lunch with? Paul. Paul just is a little chippy. He could could just be a little chippy at times. And he he doesn't always play well with others. I'm guessing he barely passed kindergarten. There is an anti-Paul faction in the early church. And there's a pro-Paul faction in the early church. And nobody knew this better than Paul. In fact, Paul probably thought about it too much and knew it all too well. Paul's evaluation of these preachers, teachers, and congregations seems to rest on how they view him. He deems those who were for him to have love, respect, and pure motives. He deems those to oppose him to preach out a rivalry, insincerity, personal ambition, and jealousy. So the one thing you need to know about Paul is he takes opposition personally. It's a tough trait to overcome as a leader. I'm just going to be real honest. It's a tough trait to overcome as a leader. 
Clearly, these anti-Paul people get under his skin in a way that his persecutions and his chains and his upcoming trial do not. So it's a fair question to ask, what's this say about Paul? Are you ready? Drum roll, please. It says that he was a human being. It says he was a human being. He's a person, just like us. He's not perfect, unlike Jesus. He's a human being. And then we get to verse 18. This is incredible, incredible, but that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. Now that Paul has kind of drawn up a for me and against me list, he comes to a staggering conclusion. None of it matters. The people who are for me doesn't matter. People against me doesn't matter. What matters is the proclamation of the gospel and that the good news is shared boldly and wildly. And that is an occasion for great rejoicing. Sometimes we just need to name a thing and move on. Paul was hurt by his detractors. He was hurt. Okay, move on. Paul's contribution to the Christian movement was not appreciated by some. Okay, move on. Paul was disappointed by people. Okay, move on. My daughter Lydia played basketball on a Pontiac Junior High team that only lost one or two games in two years. They were really, really good. In the aftermath of a conference championship, they didn't have state playoffs back then, in the aftermath of a conference championship win, which was the biggest game of her junior high career, I ran to the court to congratulate her, and she triumphantly exclaimed, Daddy, there is no I in win. A key to finding peace and joy in all circumstances is to get the eye out of the way. Is to get the eye out of the way. I think this is a pivotal lesson for victorious Christian living. Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. That's the key to forging a mature And victorious Christian life. It's death to self. As long as it's about us, we will forever exist in a perpetual kind of drama that'll keep us radiating at high speeds, but it'll never get us anywhere. It's always gonna be about me, me, me. Our speedometers may read 100 miles an hour, 24 7, 365. Our engine may be smoking and our gas tanks will be running on empty, but that's just because our tires are spinning, not because we're going anywhere. You ever just gotten caught up in a, in a mental loop film and you just radiate and radiate and radiate and just sucks the life and the energy right out of you, but you don't, you don't go anywhere. It, it becomes a spiral. If you want some real traction in your faith journey right now, I just want to suggest that you die 
to self, that Christ may resurrect within you. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ in us. I don't think there's a more powerful metaphor for death to self and resurrection to new life than baptism. It's kind of our unique metaphors as Christian people. In baptism, we bury our sins in a watery grave. We bury our sins in a watery grave. Every now and then, I'll baptize somebody. I think I may need to hold them under a little longer than usual. (laughs) And then we resurrect to victory. Victory in the Christian life comes on the other side of repentance. It comes when we realize it's not about me, me, me. We have to be able to say with Paul that that for me to live is Christ. And what I love about Paul is he's just honest. What he's really saying here is, I got all kinds of issues. I got people I don't think have treated me very well. I don't think I'm getting proper respect. I don't think I'm appreciated like I should be. Uh, There's people persecuting me for no reason. I got people trying to ruin me everywhere I go, and I need to stink and get over it because it's not about me. It's about Christ. In baptisms, we bury our sin. It dies. And then we are resurrected to victory. I want to suggest that that huge obstacle in your life right now may really be an opportunity. It may be the best opportunity you'll ever have. It might be an opportunity to repent of eye disease. Not E-Y-E, eye disease. It may be an opportunity to die to yourself. And without death, there's no resurrection in Christ. I just want to suggest that if that obstacle in front of you, if that thing that threatens to overwhelm you tonight, if you can learn to see that as an opportunity to grow in your faith, to let Jesus forge in you the character and the mind of Christ, if you can see that as an opportunity to move past your issues, then maybe that obstacle is the best thing ever happened to you. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we have the four prison epistles in the New Testament. Anything we talk about as we do this verse-by-verse study through Philippians, which could last up to eight years, anything (laughs) we talk about, is only here because Paul wrote it down. And he wrote it down because he couldn't do the stuff he wanted to do. Because what he wanted to do was travel. Paul straight up had wanderlust. What he wanted to do was travel. He wanted to preach. He wanted to teach. He wanted to plant churches. He just wanted to be on the move. He wanted to go, 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 go. And guess what you have to do when you're in prison? Stay, 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 stay. And Paul could have pouted. Could have felt sorry for himself, could have fallen into depression. I mean, there's any number of things that could have happened. 
but he decided to redeem the time. And he wrote, he wrote, and his writings are one of the great gifts to the Christian movement. If Paul doesn't stop to write things down, Christianity simply does not develop the way it does. The church does not develop the way it does. There is no way to overestimate the impact of Paul's writing on the Christian movement. It all happened because of obstacles placed in his way that purified him, that forged character in him, that moved him past himself, that allowed him to keep his weak sauce in a bottle and not just pour it everywhere he went, and forged in him the life of a spirit-filled evangelist who is the most effective evangelist in the history of the world despite his issues, despite his inferiority complex that he always had to Peter and John, despite his guilt issues that he persecuted early Christians, despite all of the things that he always would have in the back of his head, despite the fact he took personal opposition so personally, Paul was able to move past those things. What do you need to move past tonight? What do you need to move past tonight? What's putting a low lid, a low ceiling on your relationship with God? God's just kind of giving me a little word for, for some of you here. Some of you have had many times in your Christian life when you've really started to grow and grow and grow, but you always hit a ceiling. And it's kind of like a game of shoots and ladders. You always just kind of go back to where you were. And then you kind of take another run at it and you hit that ceiling again. A lot of times that ceiling is, is the I ceiling. It's the I ceiling. It's the me ceiling. And until that's crucified, you're, you're never going to break through. But when you do, you'll be in rare air. You'll be in a place you've never been before. So I want to give you an opportunity tonight as, as we close to do two things. Number one, just to repent of the I. Repent of the me. Dear God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that all of my issues and my insecurities get in your way so often. Forgive me for hanging on to things that have hurt me in the past. Forgive me because I've not forgiven people. Lord, I, I want to give this all to you. I want to get the me out so I can get the Jesus in. I'm tired of living with a low ceiling. I, I want to break through. I want to break through. I think the key to that was modeled by Paul tonight. I'm so glad he was honest. I always try to be honest as a, as a pastor, as a teacher. I just try to be honest with you. Uh, I'm sure it's not impressive sometimes. But there may be times you think, you know what? If God can work through a knothead like him, uh, he could probably do something through anybody. And I want to suggest to you that God can do something through anybody. Paul had plenty of issues. He's not genetically made to be a super apostle. 
He had issues, and he overcame them by the power of the cross, by dying to self. So I've got a couple bowls up here, and uh, we're going to remember our baptisms tonight. And, and we're going to do it symbolically. I, I apologize you can't get in. Uh, and, I, and I don't really want anybody to try. But what I would like you to do is just take your hand and, and put it underneath the water. And as you do that, just symbolically, let that represent your death to sin. Putting the me and the I behind you. And being able to say, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. And then resurrect to new life. Because that's what Jesus does in messed up people like us. That's what Jesus does. That's why he came. That's why we celebrate Easter, to remind ourselves that he can work through messed up people like you and me and Paul. Almighty God, we pray your blessing upon this gift of water and all who receive it. As we ask you to forgive us of our sin, as we die to self, we pray that you would resurrect us to new life in Christ. Thank you. Thank you for how you're healing people even right this moment. Thank you, dear God, for the people who are just putting issues that have put a low ceiling on their spiritual life for years behind them. Dear God, as people are forgiving folks that they've held resentment against. I pray, dear God, that you would just set us free. That we could say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live in the faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We die to sin. We resurrect a new life. In Jesus' strong name. Amen. We're going to have a closing song. Uh, there's a bowl here, a bowl there. If you'd like to symbolically remember your baptism, die to self, resurrect to Christ. Think opportunity, not obstacle. Stand. Let's worship together.